0: Well, hey thanks for joining us for our final part of this four week series we've been doing called sensitive if you've been with us for the last three weeks then you know that we have been looking at this idea of sin uh, and the realities of sin the impact that it has on our lives and we started this series with the really the reminder hopefully for most of us that sin is objective pervasive and most importantly sin is deadly and that transitioned us into week two where we talked about some of those sins that if sin is deadly, then all sin is deadly, even those sins that we often tolerate or minimize. And then last week, we really turned a corner talking about from sin and its penalties and its complications and the effect that it has on our lives. And then last week, we we turned the corner and we ended with some good news, and that is that Jesus has paid the penalty. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty of our sin. So that although sin is true, although sin is a reality not only in our own lives, but in the world around us, the culture around us, the implications are all around us, and yet Jesus came, and when he came, he conquered sin and he defeated sin on our behalf. And so we looked at that last week and we learned that, hey, when our faith is in Jesus, then we can be what's called justified. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But the reality is this, if we who are saved by grace through faith, if we have experienced forgiveness of sin, then the question becomes what now after being forgiven, after being declared righteous by God, what then is our relationship to sin? And in fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, will answer this question in just a moment. And we'll look at it in Romans chapter. Six, But before we do that, we really need to make sure we understand one main idea, and that's this. Before knowing Jesus, this is true for all of us, before we knew Jesus, we were not just under sin's penalty, which is death and separation from God, we talked about that, but we were also under sin's power. And what we mean is that through Jesus' death on the cross, we have been freed from not only the penalty of sin, but what we look at today and what we'll see in Romans chapter 6 is that when we came to faith in Jesus, we were freed from the penalty of sin, yes, but we are also freed from the power of sin. And really and truly, the, the Bible doesn't use these words, but in theology there are two terms to kind of describe these two realities. The first one is justification. And justification is what we talked about last week, and that is this. Once we have come to faith in Jesus... Then God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the judge of the universe, declares us righteous, innocent, not guilty. It's as if the God of all heaven, the God who governs and rules over all of creation, slams down the gavel. And he says, because of your faith in Jesus, you are not guilty. Despite all the sin realities in our lives, despite all that we've ever said, done, or thought that declares us guilty, God looks at us, sees Jesus, sees his perfection, sees his righteousness, and he slams down the gavel for all of eternity and says, you are not guilty, not because of what you have done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done on your behalf. And and that idea is justification, that God himself declares us righteous. And when he does that, we are changed positionally. Our, our position before God goes from the category of sinner and guilty and unrighteous, and we change categories because of Jesus to where now God sees us and we are righteous because of who Jesus is. And that is justification. But then there's another term, there's another reality that takes place after justification there's another word, and that word is sanctification. And sanctification is the process, this practical growth into Christlikeness. likeness So really think about it in, in two ways. Justification happens in an instant. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are justified. But then after that point, for the rest of our time on this earth, then we begin this process of sanctification where we have been declared righteous and now we are able now to begin to live out that righteousness. So these two terms are helpful because justification helps us understand our freedom from sin's penalty, that we no longer experience separation from God because God sees us as righteous. And sanctification helps us understand the freedom that we now have over sin's power. And so in Romans chapter 6, we're going to focus specifically on this idea of sanctification, this growth into Christ-likeness. Look in verse 1 with me. Paul says, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply. In other words, Paul is raising this hypothetical question. Maybe there were people in the Roman church who were, who were literally saying this and kind of spreading this throughout the church. And so Paul is hitting it head on and he wants to address it. Or maybe he's just simply playing devil's advocate because he had kind of heard this reaction to people saying, man, if all it takes is God's grace and our faith and we can be forgiven of all of our sin, man, doesn't that seem like we should just be able to sin whenever we want? And so Paul basically raises the question, he says this, in all that we've discussed in chapters 1 through 5, if that is true, then doesn't that scene if, mean if we're saved by grace that the more we sin, the more grace we'll receive? And, and isn't grace better? And so maybe we just keep sinning so that we can experience more grace. And Paul will answer his own question in the next few verses. And when he does, he will show that this question stems from really and truly a misunderstanding of the gospel. You see some of the opponents would say, man, if this is true, if the gospel is true that Jesus died on our behalf, that we can be forgiven of all that we've said, done, thought, all the sin we've ever committed, if we can be forgiven just because of our faith, then doesn't that mean that we can continue to sin? And Paul will say, well, that really misunderstands the gospel. So as Paul lays out his answer in the following verses, he really does it with true, two primary what are called indicatives. Indicatives are those simple statements of fact, because we know this to be true. And Paul will lay out these two truths, and then he'll summarize with an imperative. An imperative is a command, a call to action based on what we know to be true. And so the first truth that Paul lays out is this. When we deposit our faith in Jesus, and his righteousness is credited to us, that is justification... There was not just a position change when God says, says you're no longer unrighteous, now you are considered righteous. There was also a power exchange. Look what Paul says in verse 2. He begins to answer the question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says emphatically, absolutely not. And here's why, because the first truth is this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The truth that Paul lays out, the first thing that we know to be true is that we who are united with Christ have died to the sin nature that once governed us. So it's not just that Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God to pay the penalty of sin, it's that when we come into union with Christ through our faith, that we have been crucified with him and when he died, we also died in that union to sin. In other words, we have died to sin nature, and that sin nature that once governed us, now we are dead to it. Which means the power of sin has been defeated, it has been crucified. And simultaneously, the second truth that Paul lays out, not only are we dead to sin, but when we died to sin, we simultaneously receive new life. And so in the same instant, we were united with Christ, we died to our sin, and in that same instant, simultaneously, when we died to sin, we experienced new life. We received new life. Look what Paul says in verse 4. Therefore, because of our union with Christ, before, because we have died to our sin with him on the cross, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we who have been united with Christ walk in newness of life. So what Paul says is just as Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day, so too those of us who have been united with him, we have died to our old nature, our old man, our old self, that sin nature that governed us. We died to that sin nature. And just as Jesus walked out of the tomb on the third day, we too have been raised, we too have received new life. He says in verse five, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, which is true, that's a truth, that's an indicative that Paul points out, then also we will certainly be united and walk in the likeness of his resurrection. See, the reality is that the power that once governed us has been exchanged for a new life. So justification says our position changed. We went from unrighteous to righteous, But the other reality is that also there was a power exchange. The thing, the sin nature that once ruled over us has been defeated. We have died to that and now we have received new life. So not only have we changed positionally, there's a power and an authority in our life that has been exchanged. And we'll see that in these next few verses. He says in verse 6, For we know, this is a statement of fact, we know that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since the person who has died is freed from sin. So now Paul describes the new life that we have. And the reason we have new life is because we died to sin. And when we died to sin, the body that that became the the governing or the, the sin nature that governed our bodies has been rendered powerless is how the CSB translated. The body ruled by sin has been deemed, that that word rendered powerless literally means idle, unemployed, inactive, inoperative. One commentary says this, believers by definition are those who by their union with Christ died with him on the cross. That death had a definite purpose in the spiritual life history of the believer. We were crucified in order that our sinful nature might be stripped of its power, rendered powerless. Some translations translate it might be done away with. And that translation comes from the form of a Greek verb, katargeo, which speaks of being reduced to a condition of absolute impotence and inaction as if it were dead. That's the reality Paul describes. Because we died to our sin nature, The body that once followed the inklings and the desires of our sin nature has been rendered powerless because it's as if it was dead. It's inoperative. With the old self rendered powerless, it is no longer necessary for a person to continue in bondage to sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. In Christ, we are set free. Since sin exhausted itself in bringing about death, from that point forward, it is powerless to overcome new life. You see, in effect, Paul is saying this, when we came to Christ, our sin nature received an out of order sign. It's no longer functioning. It no longer works. It doesn't mean that it it can't work. It means that it doesn't have to work, that our old self, our old nature is now out of order. At least that's the possibility. You see, your body, once governed by your sin nature, obeyed the desires of your sin nature so that the actions, attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors that you exhibited were in line with your sin nature. However, those same exhibited behaviors have been reduced to inaction, opening the door for your body to now exhibit different behavioral patterns under a new master, because sin is no longer the master of the one who has been united with Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you too, you who have been united with Christ, if this is true of Jesus, then your union with Christ means that you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus.'" So Paul, in answering the original question, he lays out two realities for the believer. The one who has been united with Christ simultaneously has died to your sin, has died to your sin nature, and you have received new life. You are dead to sin, and sin no longer has authority over you, and you have received new life. You have a new master, and the reality is that the Holy Spirit now indwells you. And the Holy Spirit is the one who in John's gospel is referred to as the helper, the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit now indwells us and enables us to live out the righteousness that we have been given from Jesus. And then in verse 12, Paul really takes on a tonal shift He goes from these statements of fact, these matter-of-fact type statements of this is what we know to be true for the believer who has been united with Christ. We know that just as Jesus died, that we have died with him to our sin nature. We know that just as Jesus was raised from the grave, that those who have been united with him experience newness of life with new desires and attitudes of the heart and all these things. And then in verse 12, he transitions from these statements of fact to an imperative In other words, Paul is saying this, hey, because of what we know to be true, here is what you should do. And that is this, the imperative, the command, challenges us to become what we are. It's important that we realize because of justification, this is who we are. We are now considered righteous. And the imperative that Paul will give, the challenge that he gives is that we are to become what we are. God has declared us righteous and now sanctification is growth into that righteousness, growth into that Christ-likeness. And this is who we are because of Christ and who we are in Christ because Christ is now in us. In verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, because of what you know to be true, because you have died to your sin nature, because you have received new life, therefore do not let sin reign In your mortal body, so that you obey its desires. That word reign is a verb that was literally used of kings who sat on their thrones and they exercised power. Metaphorically, it refers to the highest level of influence and control. And so what paul is saying is because you as a believer united with christ because you have died to your sin nature now do not let sin reign do not let sin be the king be the authority in your life to make your body obey its desires he says in verse 13 and do not offer any parts of it your body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness but as those who are alive from the dead Offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Verse 14, for sin will not rule over you. It will not have dominion. It will not have authority over you because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. You see, I think it's awesome that that Paul rounds us out by coming full circle. What began as a question, whether hypothetical or a literal question that was being raised in the Roman church, Paul basically starts this entire section with a question that says, Well, if grace is true, if grace is the basis of our salvation, that God simply looked on us because he loved us and by his own goodness, he made a way for us to be saved by his grace. And through our faith, our sin is forgiven. It's just washed away. Well, doesn't grace now entitle us to live however we want to because it will all be covered? And Paul says, no, it's that grace that actually makes it possible for us not to have to live under sin's power. So it doesn't free us and license us to sin. Grace actually sets us free from the power of sin. You see, Paul uses an image here. <clears throat> it's maybe not obvious to us in the English language, but the idea in verse 13 when he says, don't offer any parts of your body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. It, there's some military type language here in the Greek. There's these military type pictures. And the, the, the words that are used are basically are the same words that would be used of, uh, of soldiers who would fight in battle. And kind of the image that Paul uh, brings up here is that it's as if a soldier in battle who stands face to face with his enemy, the one that he opposes, the one that he fights against, it's as if a soldier would willingly give his weapon to his enemy who could then oppose him with it. And Paul's point is this, no soldier would willingly do such a thing. No soldier would willingly give his weapon to his enemy who would then turn around and use it against him. That would be asinine, that would be crazy, and it's quite frankly just unimaginable. But Paul says the same is true for the believer. The believer would never willingly or should never willingly give sin opportunity in his or her life Because sin opposes the things of God. And God is now your master because of who Jesus is. He is Lord of your life. The Holy Spirit lives in you and gives you the power to live out this righteousness. And so why would we ever give sin a free opportunity, hand our weapons over to sin who opposes the things of God? And Paul's point is this, that doesn't make sense. If we have been saved by Jesus, Jesus is our Lord Then why would we ever willingly step into something? Why would we willingly ever commit something? Why would we willingly ever participate in something that would now oppose our master? That would oppose the desires that God has for us and desires for us to be. And the point is that would never happen in battle. And so that should never happen for the believer. So to answer the original question, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, no, absolutely not, because no one would willingly give their weapon to the one that opposes him. For the believer, you have died to sin. You have been set free from the power of sin. You have received new life to walk in new ways with new thoughts and new patterns of behavior and new ideas and all of these things that now govern you because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so we would never willingly commit to walk in sin so that grace may abound. No, grace sets us free from the power of sin, doesn't license us to sin. So as we wrap up today's series, I I hope this entire series has been an encouragement for you. I hope you have drawn insight from this. I hope in some ways it has been challenging and maybe even convicting to realize that sin is deadly and there may be hidden sins, pet sins, that I've tolerated in my life for a long time because I, for whatever reason, just not realized the impact they have on my life but I hope what's clear today is that Jesus and his death on the cross frees us from the penalty of sin, but he also frees us from the power of sin. And that's really our takeaway for today and really the whole series and how we want to end it is this. Because of Jesus' death for our sin, we are no longer dead in our sin. We are now dead to our sin. And so for you as the believer watching this, I pray this would be an encouragement to you. And I pray that you would walk in the freedom to which Christ has given you and called you to. No longer governed by your sin, no longer enslaved to your sin, but now you can walk in the freedom and the power over your sin as you walk with Jesus by the help of the Holy Spirit who works in your life. Let me pray for you today. God, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for every person who, uh, who would watch. Lord, I pray that there would be great encouragement drawn from the reality of who we are in Christ because now Christ is in us. That yes, by your grace, you made a way for us not to endure the consequences of our sin, that we have victory over the penalty of our sin, but God, you also give us by your Holy Spirit giving us new desires a new heart a new mindset, new attitudes, God, that we have new life in Christ. Yes, we have the hope of future glory, but here right now, God, you give us new life as we walk now by the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh. God, we love you. We ask that you would help us to continue to to just meditate on this truth and allow this truth to permeate our hearts, realizing the victory that you have given to us. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace that makes all of this possible, and we ask that you would give us the strength to walk in the freedom and the power over our sin. Lord, as we live to serve you, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.